Hi there, Neil here. Obviously, you love to travel. That's why you're listening to this podcast. Circa, our app available right now from the App Store on iOS, is filled with podcasts and guides for travelers. But more than that, it has a feature that we're calling the Circa Concierge, where you can have any question about any place you're traveling answered by real people on the ground. We're giving you a friend to ask anywhere in the world. And hey, if you've got questions about Barcelona, you might even get me. Because I love to help people discover my city. And if you're the same way for the city where you live, then we want you to become part of the Circa Concierge too. Right now, we're searching for concierges in Barcelona, Rome, London, Paris, Madrid, Venice, and New York City. Don't see your city listed? That's okay. We'll be rolling out new cities throughout the year, and yours might just be next. If you love where you live and love to help travelers, sign up now to be a Circa Concierge. Help out our users and earn tips for the knowledge you have about your own city or country. Head over to circatravel.com forward slash concierge and sign up today. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to Circa. In this episode of Killer Trip, we're headed to New York City to explore one of the most tragic crimes ever committed there, the murder of John Lennon. If you want to find out more about some of the places and people we mention or dive deeper into this story, download the Circa app from the iOS App Store. Inside, you'll find maps, notes and pictures, plus immersive guides to the most interesting places in the world and the best travel podcasts. So, put your headphones on, maybe wait for it to get dark, and listen closely. Circa. Love the world you live in and we'll help you explore it. In the summer through the winter of 1980, David Bowie was wowing audiences all over the U.S. with his portrayal of John Merrick in the play The Elephant Man. The play was a big deal for Bowie. Many people thought that this was the role that would eventually cement Bowie as a true actor. By the way, we all know it was Labyrinth, but I digress. By December of 1980, the play had made its way to the mothership of theater in the U.S., Broadway. On December 9th, 1980, Bowie prepared to face a New York audience. As the curtains opened, Bowie looked out onto the crowd and felt a terrible pit in his stomach. But the pit wasn't nerves. The source of the pit were three empty seats in the front row. 
As soon as Bowie's eyes landed on those empty seats, he was overcome. Because the three empty seats were meant to be filled by his good friend, John Lennon, John's wife, Yoko Ono, and Mark David Chapman, the man who had just shot and killed John Lennon the night before. Bowie knew this because police had informed him that he had also been on Chapman's hit list. But Chapman had found John first. When I travel, I'm not interested in just visiting the beautiful beaches, the theme parks, and the tourist traps of a place. The well-manicured and sanitized story of it. I like to go deeper and darker. I like to find out what the darkest moments in history can tell us about the places where they happened. The crime is only the beginning of the story. This is Killer Trip. I'm your host, Dominique Ferrari. Episode 1, New York City and the murder of John Lennon. I love the Beatles. Now, that doesn't feel like a statement one even needs to make, right? I mean who doesn't love or at least like or respect the Beatles. But truly, I love the Beatles. They were my wedding song. My kids and my pets are named after them. That's commitment. So this killer trip is near and dear to my heart because in the end, it's about more than a murder. For a lot of people, when John Lennon was killed, it was more than a man who died. It was an idea, a vision of a better world, one of peace and kindness and harmony. He'd spent the latter part of his life fighting for justice and equality and against war. And so the fact that he was struck down in such a violent way, well, that pretty much said everything about the kind of world we were actually living in, and it wasn't the world he was trying to inspire us towards. John Lennon came to New York City to find community with the kind of eclectic, artistic misfits that he felt most at home with, and to find a bit of anonymity after a youth spent in the public eye. And that was the New York of this era to a T, a place where you could at once be one in a million and one of a million at the exact same time. But in the end, it was that anonymity, that easy access that cost him his life. This is a story about fame, fake news, and fate, which all combined on one awful night in New York City to change the history of music forever.
John Lennon was born on October 9th, 1940, in Liverpool. And from the start, he entered this world with a bang. And I do mean the literal bang. While London gets all the attention for the Blitz, Liverpool, which was 200 miles northwest of the capital, was actually the second most targeted city. With Nazi bombing raids beginning that August of 1940, there were nine raids in October of that year, and John Lennon's aunt recalled bombs falling around the hospital just as John was born. An auspicious beginning for a cultural firebrand, to be sure. Chaos continued to mark Lennon's early life. Lennon's father, a merchant seaman, abandoned the family. And a few years later, his mother, unable to properly take care of Lennon, left him with her sister and her sister's husband. Now, though Lennon would often visit his mother, who introduced him to Elvis and always supported his love of music, life was never the same. Although both of his parents were alive, John was, in many ways, an orphan. Abandoned by his father, and then largely by his mother, he was a kid who felt like a misfit most of the time. I mean, the lyrics of Strawberry Fields are basically a chronicle of his lonely childhood. No one I think is in my tree. No in my tree? I mean, that's the kind of line that'll land you in therapy these days. Now... Every superhero has their origin story, including musical ones. And for John Lennon, this was his. The misfit boy with a chip on his shoulder that he would turn into a career as one of the most famous, rebellious, beloved, but also polarizing musical figures of his generation. This early childhood wound, it would stay with John his entire life and inspire a lot of his greatest songs. In fact, he spoke about it in one of the last interviews he ever gave in the autumn of 1980. He said, A part of me would like to be accepted by all facets of society and not be this loudmouth, lunatic poet-musician. But I cannot be when I am not. I was the one who all the other boys' parents, including Paul's father, would say, keep away from him. The parents instinctively recognized I was a troublemaker, meaning I did not conform and I would influence their children, which I did. I did my best to disrupt every friend's home, partly out of envy that I didn't have this so-called home. I would infiltrate the other boys' minds. I could say, parents are not gods because I don't live with mine and therefore I know. Labeled a troublemaker from day one, John lived up to the name, once getting three detentions in one day at school. He was clearly bright, but school simply did not interest him. Music did. He started a band, The Quarrymen, and began playing shows around Liverpool. It was at one of these shows that he was introduced to a young chap named Paul McCartney. From there, Paul told him that he had a friend he wanted John to meet, George Harrison. And so by 1958, three of the four Beatles had met and teamed up. They renamed themselves the Beatles in 1960, and from there, they become 
well, everything. For the rest of the 60s, the Beatles are on top of the world. They are unquestionably the most famous band in the world, maybe in history. Between 1962 and 1970, they record 20 number one hits, more than any other band in history. In case you're interested, Elvis is actually number three with 18, and number two, Mariah Carey. In a world like ours today, where the media landscape is so splintered, where there are micro-fandoms and TikTok hits and radio and XM and Apple Music and Spotify, it's hard to truly convey just how ubiquitous and popular the Beatles were. Their arrival in New York City's newly named John F. Kennedy Airport at 1.20 p.m. on February 7th, 1964, officially announced the arrival of the British invasion of America, and more specifically, of Beatlemania. So I want to try to paint a picture for you of just how crazy people were going for the Beatles. Okay, picture this. 4,000 screaming fans had actually found their way to the rooftop of the observation deck at the airport and were screaming their heads off for the Fab Four when their Pan Am jet landed on the tarmac. Is a social document for our time. In addition, 200 reporters were also there as the boys were whisked to their first American press conference. Young ladies fainted, but authorities feel that some were playing possum so that they might be lifted over the fence and thus be nearer their... From there, they were taken to the Plaza Hotel where they needed 50 police officers to hold back the throngs of fans. And once they got there, they set up shop in the presidential suites on the 12th floor, rooms 1209 to 1216, which, by the way, you can still book these rooms to this day if you've got the cash flow, that is. Two days later, they exploded onto American TV sets everywhere. This is the moment. We've all heard it. They play live on The Ed Sullivan Show, filmed at Studio 50 on Broadway between 53rd and 54th Streets. A record 73 million people tune into that broadcast. Now, of course, the Beatles were taking all of America by storm, but it was New York City that launched them and their sound into the American zeitgeist. They broke records for hits in a year, album sales, everything, multiple times. And so it wasn't that crazy when, in an interview in March of 1966, having had 12, that's 12 number one hits in just four years, that John Lennon made a little statement about the Beatles being more popular than Jesus. And after that interview... Everything changed. Believe anything they said. No, I'm not saying that we're better or greater or comparing us with Jesus Christ as a person or God as a thing or whatever it is. You know, I just said what I said and it was wrong or was taken wrong and now it's all this. Now, to be sure, the Beatles stayed more popular than ever. 
But there emerged a large and vocal opposition to them now, and to John in particular. The case was simple. John Lennon thought he was bigger than Jesus, more important than Jesus. So it was up to all good Christian kids to reject that kind of hubris and sacrilege and just burn it all, literally. Dozens of radio stations across the U.S. began banning Beatles music from their airwaves, and some even burned their records on air. Yeah, not creepy at all. Initially, the Beatles' manager, Brian Epstein, he wasn't too concerned about the burn parties. He's quoted as saying, if they want to burn the records, they have to buy them first. But eventually, even he grew a little concerned, and he even considered canceling the Beatles' upcoming U.S. tour out of fear that they might be heard or attacked. So Epstein made a statement trying to clarify the context of John's statement, which, of course, did nothing. By then, even the Vatican got in on the action. They shunned John's words, too. It was officially a full-blown controversy. Except it was a controversy that wasn't exactly true. I know, shocking. The media cherry-picked quotes to make things more shocking to readers. The audacity. John tried to clarify. If it had said, we're more, uh, television is more popular than Jesus, I might have got away with it. <laughs> you know, but as I just happened to be talking to a friend, I used the word beetle. John's intention hadn't been to say that he himself was bigger or more important than Jesus, but to point out, which wasn't incorrect, that rock and roll had become a bigger influence on the youth of the day than the Bible, and that young people were turning away from the church and towards other places for inspiration, like the Beatles. And on that, he wasn't wrong. Church attendance in the UK had been on the wane for decades. John's point might have been factually correct, but that hasn't always meant much in the court of public opinion. And his clarification didn't land with his haters. John was officially on a lot of people's shit list. Clergy, even the FBI, would eventually keep their eye on him. But why have we gone down this whole John is bigger than Jesus rabbit hole? Because John's words and the mischaracterization of them to stir up rage caught the ears of someone else a young, newly born-again Christian by the name of Mark David Chapman. Mark David Chapman had grown up in Georgia, and his early life was marred by violence. His father was abusive, and by his teen years, Mark began using drugs and skipping school. He'd also begun to fantasize that he had godlike powers over invisible people that lived in his walls, a troubling sign of what was to come. In 1971, at the age of 16, he became born-again Christian, and that would go on to define a lot of the rest of his life. But despite his newfound faith, Chapman struggled with severe depression and suicidal thoughts, even attempting suicide on several occasions. It seems Chapman would vacillate between feeling depressed and like a failure to then feeling this godlike sense that he was on a mission. A mission he was creating in his own head. And unfortunately, 
Chapman didn't just have a shit list. He had a hit list. But we'll get there. So, the Beatles wrote out the rest of the 60s on a high note. They continued to rack up hits, break sales records, and they held the ears of the burgeoning counterculture that was taking hold among the youths around the world. But then, at the height of their fame, in April of 1970, the Beatles announced to a shocked world that they were breaking up. never know the full story. And in some ways, there is no one full story because each of the Beatles had their own perspective on what happened and why. But after years of creative and songwriting tensions, being hounded by fame and accosted by fans and critics everywhere they went, and various romantic relationships that had caused, let's say, more friction, they had had enough. The band went their separate ways that year. John, now a solo artist for the first time in his life, came right out of the gate and recorded what would become his most famous song, and in my opinion, one of the greatest songs of all time. Imagine, in 1971. By then, John and his wife Yoko Ono, now completely freed from the Beatles and the image that he'd had to uphold as a member, had become deeply involved in the activist and anti-war movements, and Imagine was the fruition of all he'd come to believe. It painted a beautiful picture of a world freed from the division and violence that it had seemed to become inured to. But beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And someone else heard something very different in those lyrics. Imagine there's no heaven, and no religion too. Mark David Chapman became enraged all over again that John Lennon was, once again, in his mind, promoting the destruction of Christianity. This obsession would fester and grow for almost a decade until it reached a boiling point. The release of Imagine cemented John as an artist in his own right. He was embarking on a new chapter in his life, and by then, he and Yoko Ono had decided that a new chapter should include a new location. While they awaited the release of Imagine, John and Yoko Ono left the UK for New York City. In September of 1971, they arrived and they set up shop at the St. Regis Hotel on 5th and 55th Streets in Manhattan. Once they were there, John absolutely fell in love with the city. He was particularly inspired by the energy and creativity and the zero fuckness of the village. He's often quoted as saying that he should have been born in the village, that these were his people. John loved New York City so much, he wrote a song about it almost immediately after he arrived. The lyrics are full of his observations about New Yorkers, their attitudes, and how free he felt in the city. He also loved the attitude of New Yorkers, that zero fucks 
translated into him being able to live a somewhat normal life. I like to be here because this is where the music came from. This is what influenced my whole life and got me where I am today, as it were. And I, I love the place. I'd like to be here. I've got a lot of friends here. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is where I want to be, you know. Statue of Liberty, welcome. I even brought my own cash. In the UK, John was constantly hounded and stalked by fans. New Yorkers? They were too cool for that shit. They wouldn't deign to trip over themselves for an autograph. And that meant John could walk the streets without being mobbed. Now, there was also the matter of Yoko Ono's ongoing custody battle with her ex-lover and their daughter, which required him to stay there. But in truth, it was a convenient problem to have. John loved the city and Yoko needed to be there. So after their stay at the St. Regis, which they found to be a little too front and center in Manhattan to get them the kind of anonymity they craved, they got their first place in Greenwich Village, AKA The Village. Now, it's worth noting that the village of today is not the village of John Lennon's era. Today, you need a cool $5 million to buy a studio, so that requires giving quite a lot of fucks. But back then, the village was a kind of seedy, dirt-cheap artist's haven, a place where creativity, drug use, drag, and music filled every crevice, a haven for misfits of all kinds. And if you've never been there, it also kind of feels like a village. The streets are all windy and twisty. It's not the grid that structures the rest of Manhattan. It feels actually like a real neighborhood. Little bars and shops tucked away around every corner. Of course, there are still remnants of that village, if you know where to look. They moved into the top floor of a cozy brownstone at 105 Bank Street, which they rented from the drummer of the band Lovin' Spoonful, Joe Butler. Once they set up shop, the people who walked up those stairs were a who's who of activists at the time. We're talking names like Abby Hoffman and Jerry Rubin, who were considered radical activists, and the founder of the Black Panthers, Bobby Seale. All of them scaled those steps to hang with John and Yoko. And the neighbors weren't the only ones to notice. So did the FBI. Just months into John's move to the U.S., he was being followed having his phones tapped and eventually investigated by J. Edgar Hoover's FBI. More after the break. Hi, everyone. Circa's recruiting new concierges. A Circa concierge is a friend to ask anywhere in the world. Real people, on the ground, never bots. If you want to be a concierge for your city, go to circatravel.com to sign up. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. It was 1972. President Nixon was up for re-election. The Vietnam War was going nowhere, and the protests were growing. And what song was often sung and played at those rallies? Two, one, two, three, four. Give Peace a Chance by John Lennon and the Plastic Ono Band. All we are 
John and Yoko weren't just participating in the movement, they had practically written the theme song. In the FBI's eyes, John Lennon was a threat to the powers that be and to the U.S.'s war and anti-communist efforts. And they were going to do something about it. John knew he was being followed in those months, and he recalled feeling paranoid and looking over his shoulder all the time. But soon, the FBI wasn't just hiding in the shadows. In 1972, they began deportation proceedings against him. So now, John couldn't really leave New York City as long as those hearings were going on. The U.S. was trying to throw John Lennon out of the country. Despite all the hubbub of John's immigration case, John and Yoko's time at 105 Bank was mostly peaceful. The village afforded them the anonymity they wanted. They could walk the streets, explore, grab a bite, and not be bothered most days. Yes, 105 Bank Street was lovely. Until it wasn't. One night in 1972... The couple's house was broken into and they were robbed. The robbers took their TV set, they took paintings from right off the wall, and they took John's address book. John was most concerned with that book, and he let it be publicly known that if it wasn't returned, the Black Panthers were on the case. The address book was returned. But... John and Yoko's sense of safety wasn't. The fact was, they couldn't be anonymous, and now they knew it. They needed a bit more security. And that's what prompted them to move to the Dakota on the Upper West Side. Located right across the street from Central Park at 72nd and Central Park West, the Dakota was a co-op apartment building with a reputation as a safe place for the more famous and wealthy of New York City's denizens. And for John and Yoko, it was the perfect mixture of secure, but still totally in the thick of everything that makes New York City the greatest. While living there, John and Yoko frequented the Hit Factory, a recording studio at 353 West 48th Street. Today, it's a home renovation business, but back in the day, Everyone recorded there. I'm talking everyone. The Stones, Stevie Wonder, Simon and Garfunkel. And it's where John and Yoko would eventually record their album, Double Fantasy, in 1980. After a session there, it's said that John loved to grab a burger at Smith's Bar on 8th and 44th in Hell's Kitchen. And you can still head there today and give it a try yourself. Now, I'm going to sidebar here because this period of John and Yoko's life at the Dakota wasn't all a double fantasy. In fact, it kind of got weird in the summer of 1974. In 1973, John and Yoko had begun having some issues and they had separated. Well, let's just call it what it is. John had started dating he and Yoko's personal assistant and production coordinator, Mei Pang. They dated for 18 months, a period John referred to as his, quote, lost weekend. And during that time, John had... Mm, well, there's no segue for this. He had seen a UFO over Manhattan. According to John, on the night of August 23rd, 1974, while he and May were staying at a place on East 52nd Street, he saw a UFO fly down the East River right on top of the UN and then fly off. He actually called the police to report it, who told him that he wasn't the only one to have reported it. 
John actually made a note of the incident in the liner notes of his album, Walls and Bridges. The note reads, on the 23rd August, 1974, at nine o'clock, I saw a UFO. I love how to the point he is, just saw a UFO. Okay. All right, UFO sidebar complete. Back to the story. Eventually, John and Yoko reconciled. He moved back to the Dakota and their life together resumed. And it did a little more than resume. By 1975, Yoko was pregnant. This was momentous for both of them. Yoko was in a custody battle for her daughter, and John had long ago abandoned his first son, Julian, exactly what his own father had done to him. So this new baby represented an opportunity for a new start, a second chance. So 1975 was going to be a big year for John. Also, no small thing, but the impending birth of his son suddenly gave his immigration case new life. He had a right to stay with the mother of his coming child, didn't he? That year, he would also sit for a session at another studio that would have a big impact on music, Electric Lady Studios on the corner of East 8th Street and 6th Avenue. It was there in 1975 at an improvisational session that a young David Bowie and John Lennon riffed together and came up with one of Bowie's most famous songs. David was the vanguard of the young glam rock movement taking over the 70s, and John had followed David's work, and he dug it. They were introduced, and they hit it off. So David invited John to join him for a jam session. He did. And in just about 20 minutes of playing around, they came up with fame. That high-pitched voice coming in over David in the hook? That's John Lennon. And fame is a completely fitting song for John's life at the time. Because throughout the 70s, John dipped in and out of embracing fame and then running from it. Early in the 70s, he and Yoko Ono had staged what they called a bed-in on their honeymoon, literally inviting reporters and cameras into their honeymoon bed to talk about peace. It's quite hard to stay in bed, isn't it? I did it in India, and it's pretty hard. So we're doing it, and we think we're doing it for world peace, and we believe that, and also it's a joke. But then John, sometimes falling into drug use or being demoralized by poor critical reviews of his solo work, would yearn for a retreat from the limelight. And New York City is a great city for someone who wants to do that. You can be front and center, or you can disappear into the sidewalks of the place and be one of a million. Well, as the fall of 1975 approached, John knew which side of the fence he wanted to land on. On October 7, 1975, John Lennon won his immigration case. He was officially allowed to stay in the United States. And then on October 9th, just two days later, on his own 35th birthday, his son, Sean Lennon, was born. Fun fact, John Lennon's immigration case impacted more than his own life. It became one of the legal foundations for DACA a.k.a. Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, a.k.a. the Act for Dreamers. Pretty cool. The birth of his son changed everything for John. He decided that he wanted to be a full-time dad. He stepped back from recording and writing, and he threw himself into being the dad he had never had and that he hadn't been for his other son, Julian. Many days, John and Sean would stroll through Central Park just across the street from the Dakota. 
1979, he and Sean celebrated their birthday together at the restaurant Tavern on the Green in Central Park. In retrospect, it's easy to wonder if perhaps John had a sense that something was coming for him, and so he made it a point to step back for those few precious years to be more present in Sean's life. We'll never know. The morning of December 8, 1980, started out like any other. John, who just recently decided to go back into the studio, had spent the morning promoting he and Yoko's album, Double Fantasy, which started with a photo session with the world-renowned photographer Annie Leibowitz, who photographed a naked John Lennon and a clothed Yoko Ono in their bed. It would have been an iconic photograph no matter what, but the fact that it would be John's last professional photograph cemented it forever as one of John and Yoko's most famous portraits. After that, RKO Radio showed up to record what would be John's last interview. It's heartbreaking to listen to in retrospect. John actually muses on the thought of getting older. He said, When we were kids, 30 was death, right? I'm 40 now and I feel just, I feel better than before. I consider that my work won't be finished until I'm dead and buried, and I hope that's a long, long time. A few hours later, he and Yoko departed the Dakota, and when they did, there was a young man standing out front with a copy of Double Fantasy. John was kind to him, and he signed the album, and he asked if he wanted anything else. The man said he didn't. A photographer who happened to be waiting outside the hotel snapped a photograph of John signing the album. With that, John and Yoko got into their limo and headed out. The young man waited. Several weeks earlier, he'd quit his job as a security guard in Hawaii, signing out for the final time as John Lennon, instead of his own name, which of course was Mark David Chapman. He was a profoundly disturbed man. He'd become engrossed in the book A Catcher in the Rye, and he said he wanted to emulate the hero of the book Holden Caulfield. He was nothing like him. He'd become obsessed with certain celebrities that he associated with being part of the problem with the world in his born-again Christian eyes. His hit list was long. John Lennon, Ronald Reagan, Johnny Carson, and of course David Bowie were all possible targets. He had been lurking in New York since October, looking for some of these targets, including John Lennon. He had accosted musician James Taylor in the subway, stalked musician Todd Rundgren in Woodstock, New York. Then, according to him, he had a vision that he had to stop his plans. Thou shall not kill flashed before his eyes. And he flew back to Hawaii and he confessed his plan to kill Lennon to his wife. He even showed her his guns and ammunition. She never alerted the authorities. And then, in early December, Chapman doubled back on his original plan. He flew back to New York City on December 6th. As he waited out front of the Dakota, he got that autograph. 
He also had a chilling encounter with John's young son, Sean, who was coming back from a walk with his nanny. Chapman waved at him, and he called him, quote, beautiful boy, quoting the song that John had written for Sean when he was a baby. He waited all day and into the night. The final hours of John Lennon's life were ticking away. After 10 p.m. that night, John and Yoko were wrapping up a long day of promotion, and John was eager to get back to the Dakota so that they could see Sean, who was still up, to bed. So they hopped in their car and headed home. As the car approached the Dakota, the driver asked if he should drive them inside to the more secure drop-off point. No, said Lennon. The curb was just fine. He and Yoko stepped out. And Mark David Chapman walked up. He fired five shots at John. Four of them found their target. John was rushed in a police car with Yoko by his side to the hospital. But it was too late. John Lennon was dead. Mark David Chapman was caught and sentenced to 20 years to life in prison. Starting in 2000, he's come up for parole several times and has been denied each time. The world woke up on December 9th to the shocking news that the Clever Beetle, one of the most famous musicians in the world and a voice for peace and unity, had been murdered. The witty one, the rebellious one, the lonely one, the misfit was gone. Yoko and Sean spread John's ashes in the area of Central Park where he'd spent so much time playing and being with Sean. That area was renamed Strawberry Fields in April of 1981. And on October 9th, 1985, on what would have been John's 45th birthday, Yoko Ono and New York City Mayor Ed Koch dedicated the memorial there to him. It's a beautiful circular path mosaic of inlaid stones that lead to a single word at the center. Imagine. Yes. Imagine a world that still had John Lennon in it. For weeks after his passing, there were makeshift memorials around the city at the places John had lived, loved, and had spent his last days. But in the end, New York City moved on, just like it always does. It's a force that's too big to be stopped by any tragedy. It's shown us that time and again. It's a place of resilience. It refuses to be cowed into fear. That's just one of the reasons John loved New York City so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Killer Trip. Check out all our other episodes of Killer Trip 
wherever you get your podcasts, or you can also download it in our Circa app. And with a Circa subscription, you'll unlock so much more. Immersive guides to Barcelona, London, Costa Rica, New York City, and some of the best travel podcasts around, including our fan favorite series, Passport. Download the Circa app from the iOS store to check it out. All right, guys, see you next crime. Circa. Love the world you live in and will help you explore it.